Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show, brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. Dan with you with Michael from The Square Ball and, of course, from The Athletic, Phil Hay. If you're not yet subscribing to The Athletic, you can read all the articles on Leeds, everything else on the site at theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Sign up for at the minute, just a pound a month for six months at theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Phil, this week... Uh, we have a piece on Leeds United and beer in which um, the very own Square Ball features. Oh, goodness me. How did that happen? Yes, yes. <laughs> I... Coincidence. Um, but yeah, the, the rise of Leeds United craft ales and lagers, which might sound like a slightly weird piece, but actually it's become a bit of a uh, cultural phenomenon in the past. Did you have to do years. extensive research for that? Do you know what? Nobody sent me any freebies and I haven't touched a drop of it. Even you guys never sent me any, which is, um, we'll, we'll deal with that afterwards. Um, <laughs> but, but no, there is time yet. Well, we can't promise you free beer, but um, you can read that and all the stuff that Phil's done, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Part one of the show then, a roundup of all the stuff that's been happening. Not a lot been happening, actually. We've had a break and I think it was a welcome break. I can certainly say that from a, a personal perspective, just to shed all that stress and adrenaline that we'd had in the run up to the break. Just to not think about Leeds United for a little bit was probably helpful for us. Normally the international break is pretty torturous and particularly over the weekend in the middle of it, you get a lot of moaning on Twitter about the fact that there's nothing going on. It's boring. There's very little to fill Saturday with unless you're slightly inventive and decide to spend some time with the family. This time round, it, it was totally different. And I think it was totally different at the club as well. It, it was different because of the results before it. You know, the, the results were perfectly timed. They made a big difference to the table. And it was the ideal moment for everybody to draw breath. Uh, there weren't that many players away on international duty, which again is a bit of a change. So um, from Jesse Marsh's perspective could give them a bit of time off and could coach them more training sessions in in time that he hasn't really had so far. And for all of us, a chance to get away from the defibrillators and to breathe after some pretty stressful weeks and not even just the Norwich and the Wolves game, you know, right from the build-up to Bielsa's sacking and then the sacking itself and Marsh's appointment, it has been extremely full-on even by Leeds United standards. And I do think, yes, this was a good time for everybody to stand down. I enjoyed that, uh, was it Marsh who said in the wake of the Wolves game that it all went to his head a little bit, so he gave him a day off and he instantly regretted it. <laughs> yeah, basically straight <laughs> afterwards. He said to them, um, you're all off tomorrow. And then as they filtered out, he, he thought, why am I doing that? You know, that's not that's not part of the plan. But you do need a bit of carrot and stick, I think. And it, it was such a critical week. It was always going to be, you know, the, the results were either going to go well or they were going to go badly and, and it was going to make a massive difference either way. And because they went well, there was a, a huge release after that. And and he said about the international break, the players do need some downtime. They do need a chance to have a bit of a rest and, and to recuperate because it's been full on physically this season for them. But I think the last month, couple of months, it'll have been very full on emotionally as well. A lot of pressure. We, we've spoken at length about the, the Aston Villa game and that did feel, it felt like the, the Nadir really and, and the point at which it couldn't go any lower if Leeds were going to, going to stay up and I think the, the days between that and the Norwich game must have been intensely stressful for them all so to come out of the Wolves game in the position that they're in seven points clear of the bottom three it, it is the right time I think to say to everybody just you know 
just relax a little bit. Don't relax too much, but you know, take advantage of the fact that you you can breathe through this break and you can go through it without stressing intensely about what's going to happen on the other side of it. I mean, we can get into the injury if you want now, because the two big talking points, you know, nature hates the vacuum and all that and fills it with some sort of noise. Um, Bamford's injury, that was talked about a lot during the break. And Rafinha and Phillips' futures have, have come up back in the uh, back in the round again. But there were some other little nice little Leeds United kind of subtexts to the international break. It's nice to see Max Gradle at Wembley, for example, made made a pretty turgid game, at least interesting from a Leeds perspective. Yeah, in amongst everybody booing Harry Maguire, a few Leeds fans cheering Gradle as he as he went round the pitch. And also Alioski, very, very close to qualifying for the World Cup with North Macedonia. They had a huge win against Italy in the playoff semi-finals. We spoke to him briefly over the weekend about it, and you know, it was really clear how how big a moment that was for him and, and for the country. They're on a bit of a crest of the wave at the moment with the, the qualification for the Euros and then getting to the, the playoff final against um, Portugal, which they did lose and, and were always likely to lose on, on the balance of probability. Uh, but interestingly, you know, from the perspective of players who are actually at Leeds, Rafinha didn't travel away with Brazil. Some of the other players who would have been away, Calvin Phillips, potentially Bamford, although he hasn't been in, in recent England squads, Again, back at Thorpe Arch. So it's it's been a quiet one for the club and it has been quite peripheral stories more than anything. I will confess I did I did avoid the England game so I could watch Gianni potentially making Ronaldo and Bruno Fernandes cry, but it wasn't to be in the end. I mean, if one man does deserve a world stage, it's Gianni Alioski. Yeah. Such a shame. Yeah, I think the World Cup's ready for him. And it's it strikes me as more of a story than Ronaldo at 37 going over to Qatar and, and doing... What he does, but realistically, it was always likely that North Macedonia were going to draw a blank somewhere in, and that was the one. Where, where shall I start then? Shall I start on Bamford or Rafinha or Phillips? Let's start on Bamford. Okay. Because his foot has gone. Yes. And we saw that uh, the injury at Wolves, we now know the plantar fascia has, has twanged for, I think that's the medical Definition. Yes, we've all been introduced to this part of the body that we never knew existed. Well, the only, we said on our show this week, the only bit we knew was the metatarsals from Beckham's injury back in right. the day. That's right, yeah, when, when the Sun used to do prayer mats and stuff um, before the, the World Cup. Onto the sort of serious side of it is that it, it looks like a bad decision to bring him back now, doesn't it? I mean, these things, as Marsha said in his press conference today, which we'll talk about in part three a little bit more when we preview Southampton, but it's one of those difficult injuries, isn't it? It's not really, a, a, there's no real precise art to diagnosing it and managing it you kind of got to suck it and see you'll remember that this season there have been a couple of other players strike and Rodrigo where Bielsa when, when he was head coach was talking about them and saying these are injuries that are difficult to put a time frame on because they're just painful and one day the players will wake up and the recovery will have worked and they won't be painful anymore but it's not like your standard injury like a hamstring tear or something where you can kind of sort of strictly time frame it and it, it's been similar with Bamford in the statement that Leeds released, they said that this has been a, a bit of a problem for him for 12 months, going back to, to last year. Although I think we've only really been aware of it since that point in January where it looked as if Bamford was coming back and then suddenly he wasn't and he'd, he'd, he'd damaged that part of his foot um, in training as he, he was trying to get over the um, the hamstring strain that he'd suffered against Brentford. And clearly it is it is still a problem for him. He's looking at six weeks out Jesse Marsh was saying today that he thinks that might mean that Bamford is available for the last two games of the season. I think there's a there's a possibility as well that it means that Bamford won't play before the end of the season. It'll be it'll be touch and go. You'd, you'd expect if we're safe by that point, you know, touch wood and all that. That send him on holiday. Yeah, absolutely, a, a little bit like they did with Forshaw last season. Actually, he he had the 
the potential to get there in time for the end of the season and a season which was, you know, finished and, and Leeds were safe by, you know, well before April. But the decision with him was don't risk him, don't do anything stupid with him, send him off, let him come back for pre-season and we'll go from there. And, and actually that's worked really well for Forshaw. So again, if Leeds were up by the point where Bamford is fit, you know, it might be that Bamford wants a little run before the season finishes, but it might be that everybody agrees, look, this just isn't worth it. Get yourself um, ready and make sure that next season you don't have the problems that you've you've had this year. In terms of the decision to bring him back, I think you have to say that physically it's been the wrong one because clearly his body wasn't ready for it. I don't know how easy that is to gauge and I don't know whether this is a, a bit of a suck it and see problem where you find out when you start pushing it how bad it is. But on the flip side, and you can't really apply this to, to the Wolves game because he was off so early and actually they, they struggled from the point where he left the pitch to the point where Jimenez was sent off and, and everything turned around. But he did make a, a big difference to the first half against Norwich, I think, and, and that was a, a crucial result. And I don't know whether at the end of the season we might actually look at this and say it was worth it for the, the kind of impact that was made in, in that period. It seems like a bit of a stretch that because quite honestly, you would much rather have him fit. And once again, it poses the question of who plays up front, who scores the goals, you know, who who is going to be Marsh's number nine. But I think if, if these two results are crucial in the end to, to keeping Leeds in the Premier League, then perhaps there won't be too many tears spilt about it. I'm being really reductive now, but I'm just imagining headlines that we can distill from what you've just said there. And one is Phil Hay says, I'm glad Bamford got injured. I'm glad Bamford got injured. There we go. There's the quote. There's the clip for this show. Bless him. I, I mean, it's been... But I know what you mean, by the way. It's, it's yeah. Been, yeah, no, absolutely. It, it's been such a hard season for him, though. And it was funny because at the, the press conference today, Jesse Marsh sort of mentioned the fact that in Bamford's head, he'll be thinking about, you know, his club form and his, his, his impact at club level and the fact that he wants to play and score a lot more than this. But also, this is a World Cup year for somebody who, you know, this time last year was, you remember the Fulham game away down at Craven Cottage and, and the... What went on in, in the hours before that, where we all thought Bamford was going to be called up and then he wasn't, and he was extremely disappointed not to be. But then, you know, the chance came around and it was a one-off appearance and then back out of the squad. It's hard to know if the boat sailed for him with England or well, whether it's going to, going to come again. But it is a World Cup year and there is that at stake. And if he was scoring a lot of goals, I think he would be in contention. So I sympathise greatly with the fact that last season it was... 16 goals, I think, this season. It's not even been double figures in terms of starts for him. And they have missed him, no question. Yeah, you'd imagine he'd need like a hot streak at the start of next season and just to be scoring consistently, wouldn't you, to even be in with a shout there? I think so. It seems pretty unlikely given the, the pecking order as it is. And, and obviously this is not going to help him. Do you think, um, just playing devil's advocate here, but the disclosure that this has been going on for 12 months, is this a way of, of shifting the narrative on Bielsa, do you think? I don't know. There's no doubt at all that the that towards the end of Bielsa's time, the board were concerned about the injuries and concerned about the, the not the fitness levels of the squad, you know, the intensity and the, the conditioning of them. It was the fact that they seemed so susceptible to injury and there was nothing really changing with training. It was the same as ever because Bielsa was always going to do that. You know, that was that was kind of his approach. I have to say, I think the 12-month aspect of this, and, and just before I, I say what I'm going to say, Nobody was talking about this first half of the season. At no point was Bamford's foot ever mentioned as a, as an issue. There was the ankle at Newcastle. There was the hamstring strain against Brentford. That's not to say it wasn't going on in the background, but there was nothing being made of it as far as, as we were concerned. I think the issue affecting him for, for the past 12 months, more than anything, begs the question of why there wasn't more cover 
recruited or, or more resource recruited in, in that position. And I, I asked Marsh today, do you think for the forward you're going to need more at centre forward? You know, not to replace Bamford, but to supplement him, you know, the competition for him, support for him, whatever you, you want to call it. And he said that he's due to have a, a scouting meeting, as he put it, with um, Victor Orta next week. And he said in, further down the line, he'll be a bit more able to answer that accurately. But he did touch on the fact that, yes, there could be scope for more attackers and there could be scope specifically for another number nine. And I think with Bamford missing again, the, the need for that is pretty glaring. I wonder if Biel said the Dan James factor there was that, well, he thought he could play there. Whereas Marsh today, I thought, kind of dodged it when asked if he thought he could play up front. He said, well, he's dangerous across any of any of the front four, which to me was saying, ideally not as a striker. I don't think Dan James thinks of himself as a nine at all and I don't think many of us do having watched him do it it's not that he hasn't had good games there I thought he played well in the wind down at West Ham but then had other games you know thinking of Newcastle at home in particular where it just didn't work in the way that, that it needed to but I mean Bielsa was like that Bielsa liked to to be versatile with players I remember Harrison playing up front away at Millwall in Bielsa's second month as, as head coach and it didn't work particularly well but Harrison scored very late on and it was always Bielsa's belief that and it's a, a pretty modern way of thinking that players should never be pigeonholed into one position. You, sh- you should be able to mix and match a little bit. But the thing about this Leeds team is that they do need a, a good centre-forward in it. They do need an out-and-out centre-forward like Bamford. And I think if you go back to the Norwich game, the difference he made in the first half there, we could all see it. And you could all see what, what had been absent in the period where, where he had been out. So it, it would seem to me, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, you know, about what needs to happen to this squad if if they are staying up and they are going going at the Premier League again next season. And the first protocol, as far as I can see, whatever you think needs to be done in, in midfield, one of the first priorities has got to be to have more up front. I guess it's a conversation for another day, isn't it? When we start to look at what happens next season, about what we do with an alternative number nine, where we get them from, what they cost. Let's get into Deco, shall we? Both feet. I was going to say when you say get into him, yeah, are you um, are you going in going in studs? Up? Yeah, because we've seen a lot of noise come out of the Twitter account of Fabrizio Romano, who, if you're not aware, he's a so-called transfer guru. He gets a lot of information, obviously, doesn't he? he has lots of contacts, puts a lot of information out there. Some of it sticks, some of it doesn't. He's been very vocal this week about Rafinha's potential move to Barcelona, going as far as to suggest a five-year deal had been agreed, and there were you know, tens of thousands of Leeds fans going, well, he's got two years on his contract with us. Go away. It, it interested me that this became such a big thing during this international break because it did kind of blow up from nowhere. Um, and it feels a little bit as if in previous international breaks, Rafinha has been able to speak for himself with the way that he's played for Brazil. He's He's been so good that you've had a good few days in every break of video clips of Rafinha skinning people, scoring goals, setting up goals, um, whatever else. And this time round, the, the thing that's kind of kept him prominent is the constant chatter about where he might be going, who might be signing him, how interested Barcelona are. And also this release clause, which we're now totally convinced doesn't exist in the Premier League in his current contract. If if, if Leeds go down, there is a, a clause related to relegation. Although that's not um, unique to Rafinha at all. There'll be other players who, who that would apply to as well. And if anybody thinks that Rafinha is sticking around at Leeds in the Championship, completely deluded. You know, you, you the, the relegation release clause, I think, would make it easier for him to get out of the club, but he would be going anyway. You know, there's no way you could keep a player like that um, in that division. But if, um, if Leeds stay in the Premier League, then as the contract stands at the moment, there is no release clause. There would be in a new one, but it hasn't been signed and it hasn't been agreed. So that's a, a kind, of, kind of moot point. All of which makes you think that 
whatever is being said by Barcelona or whatever Deco's influence is in this and you know Deco hasn't spoken publicly so it's very hard to say you know it's very hard to say for sure that, that it's him who's pushing any of this although that might that might be the case but it would come down to if in the summer Rafinha is going or is potentially leaving it comes down to who bids what and do Leeds accept it and if there isn't a release clause which we, we know there isn't it's not as easy as a club just paying the money I think he has a price, without a doubt, and I do think we all kind of know that we're, we're heading to a point where he is going to move on, want to move on to something bigger um, than this. And Mar- I asked Marsh about Rafinha today. His view on it was that it's totally understandable that Rafinha's been linked with Barcelona because why wouldn't he be? You know, he is that good and that's going to happen and, and, and he understands that. I think the only way he's looking at this at the moment is to try and keep Rafinha's head straight so that he gets as much out of him as he can for, for as long as he's here. But it it just seemed odd to me that it's blown up so much in these two weeks because I didn't see the the context for it doing that. Yeah, and Romano was was at it like it was like five times in a week or more. Like there was something almost the same story being parroted every day for no good reason. You occasionally see though he's he has to resort to kind of tweeting something about Scottish football or something, and you can tell at that point he's he's kind of run out of stories. So he'll, he'll kind of break a heart. Here we go. He'll kind of break a story about Motherwell or something. Bar- barrel scraping in at Time Castle. <laughs> I, he, he has a lot of stories though. I mean, you can't pretend that he doesn't have very good contacts. Well, the, the... We're allowed to go in on him, Phil, when we don't like what he's saying. Well, feel, well, feel free. Feel free. Likewise, likewise with me as well. I mean, the um, stuff on the, the kind of agreeing personal terms, are we reading too much into that? Is it is it more or less at this stage as in Deco and Barcelona know that they could come to an agreement and they, they know he's within their price range in the way that we did with Aronson I suppose where the club felt confident that that side of it would be fine if if we could agree a fee Well Deco and Barcelona are really really close and it, it was always the case that Barcelona were, were going to be a likely destination for Rafinha at some stage although I don't think by any stretch they're the only major club who who would be interested in him the whole personal terms contract stuff is, is a bit of a red herring because it seems to me that Barcelona have the money to agree personal terms with Rafinha in the space of 10 minutes so the only relevant thing here if Rafinha was to be interested in joining them which surely he would be you know you can't be unrealistic about that the only relevant point here is can Barcelona agree a fee with Leeds if, if it comes to that and there were some Mon- re- money bags Barcelona well, Phil well, there were some reports in in Spain which admittedly were, were um, referencing this release clause that, that doesn't exist um, in the Premier League but we're saying that Barcelona's ideal scenario would be to get him for about 30 million quid mm. now if Barcelona value him at 30 million quid and want to make that happen it just isn't going to happen just want um, to tell you Phil just a little side note here that I want to get a Ferrari and my ideal scenario for getting that Ferrari is that I pay about 50 quid for is, it is to pay as much as Michael paid for his new <laughs> O2 Renault Clio go in our mailbag you know I, 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 I squeezed that in this week someone tweeted me about it and I thought have I been spotted in this and people <laughs> someone said you haven't really bought an O2 Clio have you and I was like yes the, Cle- <laughs> the Clio of shame good man good man you quite often see these days it reported um, you know player and club have agreed a, um, a contract now all that needs to happen is the clubs need to agree on a fee. And, you know, unless it's a fee to complete and you know that a fee is going to be agreed, that's the hard part of it. Well, you know? well the, the accusation that always comes around with this stuff is people go, well, that's tapping up. Tapping up doesn't really exist anymore, does it, as, as, a, as a concept? it's a bit That's a bit of a red herring as well. Yeah. In that agents talk to clubs and he'd say, right, if, if Rafinha came here, how much would you pay him? So that's as far as the conversation goes. And they go, well, you know, X amount a week plus this signing on bonus. And Deco goes, right, fine, cool. Well, and it doesn't go any further because there's no deal agreed between the clubs. You don't, 
necessarily have to ask for permission anymore because agents do what they want. To use Rafinha as an example, Victor Otter has said quite openly that he and Deco first spoke about Rafinha at the beginning of the summer window where he was signed and at that point he wasn't for sale at REM but then he was and Deco phoned back and you know the, the deal was done and, and whatever else. It, I could give you loads of examples of players at Leeds who have been air quotes tapped up by other clubs loads of players who you know Leeds have kind of done the same with and, and every club does it because that's that, that is works, kind of modern it? recruitment. Yeah. You want to know firstly can you pay what they would want because it's absolutely pointless agreeing a fee with a club or getting to the point of negotiations and then finding that a player says, well, you'll have to pay me this. Well, we can't afford that. Okay, bye. And then that's the the end of it. But also getting some inkling into what the other club are going to want you to pay. Otherwise, you get stuck in a scenario where, I mean, look at Brighton and Ben White, you know, the time that Leeds spent on that. And in the end, just could not get close to a fee that Brighton were going to take. More to the point, Brighton just seemed to pull the shutters down and say, we just don't want any bids full stop. He's he's not going in this window. So it's not unusual. Tapping up is a pretty outdated concept these days because it's the, the way the world works. And having um, failed to get Ben White, we immediately switched to Robin Cock, who had previously been in touch with Victor Arter because he'd... I think, I think been sending he'd, him videos. I was yeah. going to say either Arter or, or, or Cock, I can't remember who, has said that the videos have been sent to say this is how we want you to play, this is how you'd fit yeah. into our team and things. Freiburg, to be fair, in, in that scenario, were very much aware of the fact that Leeds were keen and very much aware of the fact that they might have to sell Cock in that window and, you know, that that, that was, was pretty likely to happen. So I think that was all fairly friendly and, and above board. I, I don't think there was anything untoward there, but it does go on. And and ultimately, I think from an agent's point of view, to do your job, you, you, have, to, you have to keep your ear to the ground and you have to be in the market to see what's What's going on? And there's no doubt that Rafinha is a very, very lucrative asset. It's fine when we do it. (laughs) (laughs) Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Right, time for some fun now. The Athletics Transfer Calculator. Let's explain what this is for the benefit of anybody who hasn't seen it yet. The article was published this week. Some big headline figures, the biggest of which was Alan Shearer, £222 million in today's market. This is according to Kieran Maguire, who is the football finance expert, and his colleague Jason Laws at the University of Liverpool. They've put together this calculator that allows you to factor in not only inflation, but also the size of the TV deals and the money sloshing around in football across the last sort of uh, 20 or 30 years or whatever. So it's a basically a loose idea of what someone would cost in today's market. Some of the fees, massive, some not so massive. What have you picked out from this and what's your big takeaway from it then? What I liked about this was the ability to get some insight into what clubs were actually spending back in the, the 90s. Because all you're left with now is four four point five million pounds for Brolin, three point four million pounds for Yeboa. Even somebody like Lee Sharp, you look at four point five million pounds for him. And if you get lost in the mindset of ultra modern football, as in 
2022. It doesn't sound like a lot of money. I mean, you know that it kind of was a lot of money and, and it was big expenditure, but it it takes a lot for the to, to compute exactly what the, the investment really was. So when you, you work it out and when you apply the, the inflation calculator, you have Thomas Brolin coming in at £70 million. You have Lee Sharp coming in at £67 million. The two that, that I sort of gravitated towards very quickly were Robbie Fowler and Seth Johnson because they're still considered to be you know the straws that broke the camel's back in the Ridsdale era. That was £100 million, the equivalent of bond on those two. You know, in, in real terms at the time, £18 million quid. But that's what... That, you know, that's essentially what was going out the door when they arrived. And actually, I mean, once you start to go back to the Ridsdale era and look through it really closely, you do realise the scale of the investment that was going on at that time. It was it was pretty astronomical and it was Champions League level. And it explains why for, you know, that season or a couple of seasons, Leeds were so good and so progressive. And it also explains why after that they were in deep, deep trouble financially. Well, the biggest symbol of the largesse was Rio Ferdinand, who went for £18 million at the time, which raised eyebrows. I mean, to give it sort of more historical context, we've gone back and done like the Matchball 30, which is our 30-year-old game-by-game journey through like 1991-92 over on our podcast. And we've dealt with transfer rumours around that time. And a million quid was massive Mm -hmm. back then, absolutely massive. And Leeds spent several £1 million on a variety of, of different transfer fees. And then we went and we signed David Rowcastle for £2 million in the summer of 1992 when we were champions, valued at over £50 million by this calculator these days. So that gives you an idea of kind of how much money £2 million was back then. But yeah, the Champions League era is the most interesting one. And I, what I've done is I've pulled a team together from that era. So I will share it with you if you like. Uh, we've each sort of picked out some players, I think. So I'll give you my Champions well, League I, I was just going to say quickly there, you know what you're saying about the early early 90s. And one of the biggest deals was for Brian Dean, um, who was, was almost 70 million. But you'll remember that when the Premier League came around and suddenly there was, the, the clubs were kind of awash with money that they hadn't had before, that extra cash um, revenue that dropped on them. Everybody was after a, a striker, goal scorer. So you had Man United doing Andy Cole and you had Newcastle doing Les Ferdinand. You had Liverpool doing Stan Collymore. You know, even Dean coming into Leeds, he'd, he'd had a really good streak at, at Sheffield United. So that's where the, the cash was going. And the amounts that were spent on them comparatively are huge when you look back now. You know, Andy Cole going to Man United for 7 million quid is, I haven't got the, the calculation um, to hand, but that, you know, that'll be well up, you know, 60, 70, 80 million pounds. Um, it, there was money going in all directions. Yeah, it did snowball, didn't it? it? We went from sort of ones millions to two millions to that that three point three million with Shearer kind of then pushed it on and Chris Sutton as well. When you look at yeah, the- and, then, and then like six for Ferdinand and I think it was eight for Colin Moore and it did just little by little by little um, increase and has never stopped. So yeah, I've put together from these players a it's a Champions League era eleven. You have to use your imagination with some of it. I've had to give it a bit of a tactical tweak. We're playing a narrow four three three. Um, just to accommodate transfers rather than freebies like people who came through the pub. What, what is the point in this? Is it the best value or is it... Um... It's just to give an illustration of what these players cost at the time and what it would cost to put together a Champions League era squad yeah. these days, um, according to this calculation. So in goal, I've got Nigel Martin, obviously, signed in 1996 for 2.25. In today's money, according to this, 33.3. Still good value. Great value. I that. think that's good yeah. value. Danny Mills at right back. I've put him in because Gary Kelly would have been probably the, the first choice there. But in order to you know make this work, give us a talking point. Mills in 1999, four million quid comes out at 32.7. He'll no doubt be mourning his his lack of um, signing on fee from this. <laughs> 
I couldn't find a left back within the algorithm. I could probably have put Don Matteo in there, who in today's money would have been probably about 30 odd million according to this. But I've, I've had to put Ian Hart in for free, which would be free today. Mm-hmm. Good value? Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. And then my centre-halves are Ferdinand signing 2,000 for 18 million. That's 124.9 million, the most expensive Leeds player on this. Do you know what, though? I think that's value for money, don't you? Well, I mean, not really, because he's a footballer and nobody's worth that, but I know what you mean. No, yeah, but like, oh, Okay, no, that's, that's a very, very good point. But if you think that M- Harry Maguire, Maguire yeah. that everybody is talking about constantly at the moment, 80 million pounds. I mean, Ferdinand was not far off a pretty flawless centre-back. Um, I've done a best value living, actually, Maguire? which... Um, <laughs> Yes, moving on. I've done a best value living, which we'll come to shortly. And I did actually put Fernand in there because I think for the, I think it, it was he was as good as good as just about anything out there, certainly in, in Britain. And I've put Radebay as his centre half partner, signed in 1994 for a quarter of a million quid, five point one million, exceptional Amazing. value. Amazing, and you get Miss um, Missinga thrown in for um, for uh, part of the deal. Yes, and then my midfield three is Bowyabati and Decor. So we're, we're playing sort of quite narrow, slightly imbalanced, but you know, roll with it. Lee Bowyer signed in 1996 for about 2.8 million, 41.4 in today's money. Very good value. Who at the time he was basically the hottest property, wasn't he, in terms of teenage talent and got better. Yeah, yeah. Um, in there, Batty uh, signed in 98 for 4.4 million. Again, similar price to, to Lee Bowyer, 41.3. I think that's good value. I mean, you're talking England international, mm-hmm. um, great footballer. Decor, who was an absolute Rolls Royce of a footballer, signed in 2000 for 7.2 million. 50 million in today's market. I think that's all right, you know. I think you'd pay 50 million for him now as well, don't you think? Yeah. Exactly that, yeah. And then a striking trio of uh, Robbie Fowler, Mark Viduka and Robbie Keane. So Fowler on the left, signing 2001 for 11 million, 60.8 million these days. Viduka through the middle, signing 2000 for 6 million, 41.6. I think that's probably goodish value, that is. when you What was the lad from um, from Celtic who went to Palace? He was in mid-twenties, wasn't it? Oh, Edward. Yeah. Yeah. These days. So you're probably in the right ballpark-ish there, sort of 20s, 30s maybe. Mm-hmm. But Viduka, 41.6. And then finally, Robbie Keane, 2001, signed for 12 million quid, 66.3. So the overall 4-3-3 Champions League squad comes in at just shy of 68 million quid. If you were buying it in today's value, according to these calculations, 497.4 million pounds. So you're talking half a billion quid. But that actually is... It's about the what sort you pay, of money you have to yeah. pay at that level now. I mean, Haaland, it looks like, is going to move to somebody this summer. And you'll you'll watch with interest, I think, to see probably not just the, the fee, but um, the wages as well. You know, I mean, the, the wage bill on top of that would be something else, something else entirely. Um, it's funny because it's a mixture that of very good deals and, and very poor ones. You know, some that some that will bang on the money and some like Fowler that were just totally, totally excessive. I went for a best value eleven. Was, so was there a Ridsdale part of the algorithm out of interest? In <laughs> Some sort of an additional fifteen twenty percent. A multiplier, yeah, that, that yeah. gets thrown thrown on top. Um, so uh, going through the players, so not necessarily the best value um, in terms of who cost the least, but who looked to me like you know great value for money um, or very very good value for money. So I went for Nigel Martin in goal, like you said, the equivalent of thirty three million pounds. Ailing at right back um, at three hundred k. I have to say, one of the things that did jump out, you were asking for takeaways from this, was that a lot of the best business that's been done by Leeds in the Premier League era was done in the EFL. Mm-hmm. You know, guys like Ailing and Hernandez, who is, needless to say, going to feature in this. I went for Radaby at centre-back, five million quid with Masinga thrown in. <laughs> I I did stick Ferdinand in there because I, I, I think 
in different circumstances, they could probably have made a lot more money um, on on Ferdinand um, had they been able to hold on for him longer and and to have developed him. But he was he was as good as just about any centre back you could have bought at that time. Left back, I went for Dallas, who's the equivalent of about one million quid because it hasn't really appreciated much I mean, that's, since that's he signed. Ridiculous, isn't it? That is a joke, isn't it? And then Hernandez, I was told at the time roughly what Hernandez cost, but I, I, we had to sort of estimate this a little bit. But he'd have been the equivalent of about half a million pounds, which again is just, you know, absolute madness considering what, what he did and, and how he performed. Decor in there at 50 million pounds, Boyer in there at 40 million, which I think is, is terrific value for money that. Baduka at 40, Rafinha at 17. And then I had to put in Hasselbank there who came for the equivalent of £22 million, which is a total snip. You see, that is a snip. That really is. But Despite then, everything that went on with him, you know, that is a snip. I mean, it isn't an era that is, though, that when uh, footballers from sort of the lesser obvious leagues, the slightly lower profile leagues, like we signed, it was a Boa Vista we signed him from. Yeah. Portuguese league wasn't as well known. You're relying more on international scouts, rather, whereas the whole world is connected these days. So he felt slightly obscure in the same way that I guess Tony Yeboa did as well. And he was signing him from Germany, for God's sake. He'd been sake. top scorer in Germany for, I think, yeah. at least one or two like, seasons. Who is, this, who is this mysterious but, man? But he yeah. was the equivalent of almost 70 million quid. Worth you know? every penny. So, yeah, no, absolutely. So whereas it, Brolin was a complete waste of cash, you know, Yeboa was... And I actually, I look at Yeboa and think, I wish he'd emerged in a slightly different era where you'd have been able to take him and turn him into the world's best because he did seem to have that, you know, that level of talent he was about on, him. Believable. He was the world's best yeah. for about six months. Yeah, it just it just wasn't long enough, unfortunately. I mean, the finish you get fixated on the Liverpool goal and the, the Wimbledon goal, but when you watch his highlights reel, it's just everything. There's everything. The goals at West Ham, and you know, anywhere anywhere the ball drops to him, it should bang in. And a lot of the people I think that represent great value in this are probably players who were quite cheap to acquire. Ross McCormack would only be 800 grand by today's standard. Same price for Snoddy as well. I mean, it's nothing, is it? This, whole, this whole list turns me into Ken Bates in my thinking <laughs> on transfers. I just think you should never never spend money on anyone <laughs> or anything. Like, like Becchio and, and... Your wife is very Be- lucky. Becchio and, and Beckford um, as well. But, th- but then it has to be said, as you get into the list, you do have Danny Pews and Diagaragas and others. Um, so yeah. it's not... It's not Feel safe, is it? But, but Liam Cooper's coming in at a cool mill, and you've got yeah. a, a Premier League captain there. You know, maybe I he's... almost put him in instead of Ferdinand actually because of the the cost. Would of you him. Would you prefer to spend a million pounds, Michael, or one hundred and twenty five million at centre half? I mean, Rio Ferdinand was incredibly good. Yeah, we I know because of where he went and stuff. He he kind of falls into the almost into the cool category of because of what happened afterwards. We don't like to talk about just how good he was, but yeah, it was he was unbelievable. I wouldn't have swapped him for anyone at the time. And one of the ones that's really caught my interest is, uh, and again, you have to be over a particular vintage, but 1992, Frank Strandley, who Norwegian centre-forward. Fair to say that he didn't look the most athletic in terms of how he ran, but we got him for 300 grand back then. In today's market, they're talking seven and a half million, which feels like not the, the best value. God bless him. I feel like the old fees are all kind of weirdly skewed, though, because they were, for the amount of money people had to put into a football club, non-football money could be used to buy these players at the time. Like Jack Walker, what he did at Blackburn, came in and built a whole team and a club for, about, I think, put like 80, 90 million quid in or something. Yeah. That, it would buy you a single player these days and just being a kind of a rich local paint company owner or something, as we had at Leeds, just isn't enough anymore, is it? So no. I think it, it felt like, well, it was only a couple of million. It was, it was there were more human figures in, in some ways back in, in the kind of, even into the, the era when it was, it was escalating. It's funny the difference as well you see between 
say somebody like Michael Bridges, who would have been, the, he was £5 million, but the equivalent of about 41, which given how good a finisher he was and how good he could have been, I think was, you know, absolute bang on the money. You know, that he deserved that sort of fee to be spent on him. But then you swing towards Robbie Fowler, who was a better player overall than, than Bridges and, and had, a, had a better career, but just wasn't really needed in the circumstances at the time. And in order to get him, it was a case of just pay whatever, you know. So they, they paid 11 million quid for somebody who, you know, was clearly on his way out of, of Liverpool. So you can almost draw a line, I think, in the, the Ridsdale leader between the period where it all seemed to make sense and then the period where it absolutely didn't make sense. And what is very, very noticeable is that from kind of 2002 onwards in the signing of Nick Barmby, there is virtually nothing of note when it comes to expenditure. It just all dried up suddenly. What I will say is this, that looking down this entire list and, you know, maybe pick a different one, but I think Rafinha stands out head and shoulders yeah. as the best value on this entire list at 17 million quid. But there's, there's nobody who comes in at a lower value who you would consider to be more of a talent or to have more potential than him. Hasselbank at 22 million probably rivals quite closely because that's not a lot of money for somebody like him. But yeah, I, I got Rafinha in my lineup because I, I do think that when everybody looks back, that'll, that will look like the steal that it's been. You're forgetting how good Carlton Palmer was in 1984. <laughs> that's true. Well, said he'd marked some of these in red, red being the, um, the players who didn't quite... Um, didn't quite cut it. And how much was Palmer? The equivalent 50. of £53 million. Pounds. Late Wilco isn't a great era, it's no. worth saying in this list. Brolin Sharp, Carlton Palmer, even David White is a is a huge figure on there as well. Yeah, because well, David White was um, exchanged for uh, for Rowcastle, wasn't he? He went the other way over to Man City. And um, I think, was he given an equivalent value um, in, that, in what was essentially a swap deal? Mm-hmm. But two million quid translated into nearly 50 and a half million uh, feels slightly bonkers in 2022 but uh, you know here we are but yeah Carlton Palmer it's funny because he kind of came in for the same fee that David Batty went out for and took the number four shirt and was never going to be as loved as Batty for reasons that are entirely self-evident I just I just I feel talk me into spending 52 and a half million quid on Carlton Palmer yeah but the only thing I would say is that if you did a list now you know of more recent transfers the most expensive transfers around the country or around the world there would be some that you would look at and think Jesus you know like I mean for example like Torres to Chelsea the amount of money that was paid for him you know for what and Andy Carroll to Liverpool there are loads and loads of deals that might have potentially made sense at the time or or that could only have been done if you were willing to pay what had to be paid and and therefore you did but yes I, I don't think that was a roaring success was it? I kind of look forward to a future in which we're, we're doing this in another 20 years' time going, so in today's money, Harry Maguire would be half a million pounds <laughs> because it's all, because it's all reined into a more normal level. Yes, the bubbles <laughs> burst completely. <laughs> this episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Southampton at the weekend and from Jesse Marsh's Thursday press conference, we know that Phillips and Cooper are both back, both fit. Unlikely to start both of them, which we'll get into in a second or two. We didn't mention Phillips um, in part one in terms of his uh, his future. 
So where does that lie at the minute? Because there is apparently, there are quotes doing the rounds that he's willing to put pen to paper on a new deal. He said that to the club back in October, um, or certainly before Christmas. And likewise, the club would like to sign him to a new deal. And and I think they kind of have to in this window coming up if he, if he isn't going. Because clubs tend to see two years out from the end of a, a player's deal, particularly if they're a high value player, as a, a critical point where you either extend or you see them potentially run down to, to 12 months to go, at which point the value is fairly majorly diminished and they are very, very close to becoming a free agent, which is not a scenario you want to happen with a player who should be worth a lot of money and, and should be bringing in a lot of money if you decide to to let them go. So yeah, I mean, my my impression with Phillips has always been that, that he, he would be happy to extend, although clearly there will be interest with him. And again, I mean, he, he must have ambitions to play beyond the level that Leeds are, are at in the Premier League um, at the moment. But you would like to think that, that that would happen. And there's a lot of talk always at Leeds about, you know, the Leicester City model and what Leicester have done and how they've sold and reinvested. And one of the key points about the Leicester model is that Leicester never got into a summer window where they found themselves selling two, three, four high value assets. It was always one player per window for big, big money. They would control the negotiations. They would they would basically be in the strong bartering position and they'd get a huge amount of cash in. They'd know exactly who they were going to spend it on and, and that's how they did it. And it's worked really, really well for them. So Leeds cannot have a summer where suddenly, you know, loads of prize players are either potentially leaving or, are, are, you know, there's, there's pressure on them to sell. They've, they've got to control that. And my gut feeling is that with Rafinha, the, the amount of noise around him suggests that somebody is liking the idea of him moving on to, to bigger things in the summer. But I would like to think that, you know, with, with one of Phillips or Rafinha, they will certainly stay. Would you like Calvin Phillips to stay, Michael? <laughs> I, I kind of feel like he might, but maybe that's um, a complete naivety. I mean, he's done it once, hasn't he? In terms of he had the, the offer of the Premier League move, admittedly to a, a not brilliant Aston Villa side, but he's had the, he's had the chance to further his career I guess in the past and he's stuck with us so my hope is that he might give us a bit more time um, and at least another season to actually see him in the team because if he's been more out for more or less all of this season I think the good thing with Phillips as well is that he is an England regular and obviously hasn't been playing recently because he's been injured but Leeds you know have given themselves a really strong chance of staying up you would have thought if they do stay up and, and he's playing in the Premier League next season Southgate tends to be very loyal to the, the players who he rates and the players who are right in the, the thick of his team the World Cup is coming round in, in November and it seems certain to me that if he's fit that Phillips would be not only on the plane but um, in the in the starting lineup most likely. So I don't feel as if the, the pressure's on in that respect at all. And I guess with these players as well, as they get bigger and, and better in terms of their reputations and, and ability and, and as they start to, to aim for, for bigger things, you have to sell them a, a bit of a vision, don't you? And you have to sell them a bit of a dream. And I think Leeds will have to do that in this window by, you know, investing in a way that does change the squad. Hey, just seeing the news today as well, that's emerged about the um, the agents' fees that Leeds have paid out. Premier League average was 13.6 million. Leeds have paid out 11.4. Crazy business, isn't it? We were talking about the transfer fees before. That's a, that's a lot of money. We're in the wrong business, I think. It is, it is. But in a lot of respects, it has to be done. Um, th- there are very few, certainly bigger clubs in, in the Premier League who resist agents' fees because when it comes to certain deals, you, you just have to... You have to indulge. Which brings us back to Haaland, actually, but that is a conversation for a, a different day and probably, <laughs> and probably a different club, to be perfectly honest. Back to Phillips then and Saturday. And does this feel like a massive opportunity to you this weekend, Phil, in terms of you've got a Southampton side that's on a poor run of form lately, three defeats on the bounce. Leeds win, 
ties up probably the worst of the season. It means we can probably start looking ahead, all things being equal. A set of fixtures for all the opponents that look really tough. You'd expect a number of them, if not all of them, to drop points. Surely this is just requiring a Leeds win now. Not only this game, but Watford away coming up afterwards. It feels to me that four stroke six points from those two would... I mean, six points from those two would push Leeds up to 35. And 35 is going to be enough there or thereabouts. You know, maybe a small move in, in one or other direction. But that, you know, that should see you see you right. And particularly because Watford are one of the teams below Leeds, you know, winning at Vicarage Road would, would, be, would be a massive problem for them. So I would be, I think Phillips in particular, I would be trying to to get back in. Stroik hasn't played hasn't played well, I don't think, recently. But when I look at Stroik, I, I always think to myself, this is the player who I think Leeds in, in the mains think will be succeeding Cooper long term on the left side of defence. And given that the pressure is off slightly after the last two games and the last two results, this would seem to me to be a good time to try and let Strike play his way back into form and, and to try and get a, a bit of a run of games there, you know, so so he can start to grow a little bit more. But I think without wanting to see Phillips pushed sooner than he should be, I think in the same way as it felt like a day for Bamford against Norwich, these feel like two games for Phillips. I could imagine Phillips coming back in and playing well in both, helping to, to get results in both and basically wrapping the season up, which is exactly what Leeds want at the first opportunity. Don't we need it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we really do, I think. Everybody. Um it's been long and it's been hard and it's it's taken it's taken it out of, of everybody involved. And there's nothing to be gained, certainly no pleasure to be gained from tension building again during the running. You know, they've been through that already, particularly against Aston Villa that night where you did come away thinking, is this squad going down? Is that the way this is going? It would be in everybody's interest and it would do everybody good to have four, five, six games where there was literally nothing riding on it. And also it might do Marsh good to have games like that where he can actually start to properly implement his own style. Yeah, which you imagine would happen easier when that pressure is off that that little bit. It was interesting actually hearing him say in Thursday's presser about the points target that he's not really got one in mind. He had 38 in his mind, but I'm sort of with you that I think 35 and I know they're looking at 35, aren't they, at the club and thinking it's probably going to be enough. Because to get up to 38, I looked at the um, the numbers required for the bottom current bottom three to get there. Watford would need 16 points out of 27. So you're talking 1.77 points per game. Burnley, slightly below, about one and a half points per game. And Norwich is probably out of sight to get anywhere near that. Now you're talking 2.3 points per game. So none of those clubs have gone anywhere near that sort of form all season. You would imagine 35 should do it. I think so. I think so. I mean, you remember Marsh saying after the Wolves game that he'd kind of paid no attention to the fact that Everton had beaten Newcastle um, the night before because it wasn't going to make any difference if Leeds kept putting points on the board. And that seems to me to be the best way to to think of it rather than aiming for a, a specific target. But what you might find is that if Leeds were to shoot up to 35 in the next two games, then suddenly with the pressure off and the ability to play more freely um, and, and I guess the ability you know, in, in Marsh's hands to to do a bit more maybe with what he wants to do with the team, you might find that you're clearing 40 and that the, the margin in the end is is pretty big and, and doesn't make it look like the, the near brush that it's been. But they're, they're a long way still from being able to say that. Um, they, they do actually need the, the results on the board. But Southampton are, are not in good form, three league defeats in a row. And obviously the FA Cup defeat to Manchester City, although they did play pretty well in that game. They, they, they were decent. Um, but it's you know they they had a, a very good run. I think it was one defeat from thirteen from kind of mid December onwards, and they have 
you know, they have buckled slightly, but they're in a position, they're on 35 points already. They're not going to go down. And so there's not a lot of pressure on them. And we did see with Villa, I felt when they came to Ellen Road, that, that having very little pressure on them did help. But I guess there's the other side of it, which is because they had a drop off last season, Southampton, when they were safe. Do we see hopefully the same thing happening this season where the players are just not quite at their peak output? That's, I think that's the ideal scenario, isn't it? You, you want them rather than playing with freedom, just to be playing with a non, slight... Non-competitive games at this stage of the season. Exactly. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah. That's what we'd like to see. Um, talk to me about Gelhart then and what you think is going to happen there because Marsh has said that he's going to play a much bigger role going forward. Does that indicate to you that he starts this weekend? He was implying that he would have started at Wolves had he been fit or, or would have had far more in the way of minutes because he had the, that back injury leading up to it. So in the end, it, it wasn't really an option. But minus Bamford, as ever... He looks to me like the the obvious call, um, and it, it would make sense, I think, to to go with that, to be aggressive and and to be to be positive with the, the selection of the team. One of the things that's been spoken about down in, in Southampton is the fact that it has been a really really settled eleven um, under Hassan Huttle, to the extent where some people, some commentators, are wondering whether some of the players are a little bit complacent about the fact that they will be in the team and and they will continually be in the team no matter what and. Some of the noises that Hassan Huttle made after the last game, the 2-1 undefeated home to, to Watford, which was a really poor result and actually not a great result for Leeds either, was about trying to make more players feel, or, or to make the, make, make the players feel more, that what was going on in training through the week was going to lead to decisions at the end of it. So they, I mean, they do have a few players back. Romeo and, and Teller both look like they'll probably be available. I think Alex McCarthy, goalkeeper, is back training as well. But there's certainly more riding on this for Leeds than there is for Southampton. However however poor their recent form has been, they, they've pretty much done the work this season. It'd be interesting to see these sort of clash of Red Bull styles, won't it? How, well, how that all plays out, because they're both from the same stable. Yeah, he'd, um, Marsh was speaking about Hassan Hull today and about how he'd, he'd gone to, um, you know, he'd gone to work with him or gone to, to spend kind of six weeks with him six or seven years ago. And was talking about how Hassan Hull invited all the staff over to his house, um, and and had played the piano for them, and and this, that, and the other. Um, I wouldn't have said that their styles of play are identical, but there will be there will be similar philosophies in there somewhere. I think we'll we'll be looking at four four two with Southampton. That does tend to be the way, and I don't think um, Hassan Hull will will deviate from that. But he might feel more inclined to to mix his lineup up than, um, than Marsh will do this weekend. It's not that Marsh necessarily, necessarily has the freedom to do exactly what he'd like to do. But, you know, Bamford aside, there are plenty of players available and, and everybody who was borderline killed in that absolute carnage at Molyneux <laughs> seems to be okay. As much as I miss Bielsa, I am quite glad we're not having to go into this one thinking about shifting to a back three to accommodate the front two because it seems like that was always the oh, thing, yeah, wasn't it, against Hampton? Earlier yeah. in the season with our complete collapse there seemed to be attributed to that to a certain degree. Yeah, but I mean, tactically, it still needs to be right. He's very aware, I think, Marsh, of what's going on and what's been talked about um, out in the wider world. I mean, when we asked him about Rafinha, he got into Deco and Barcelona and, and all that sort of stuff. He, he knew what had been what had been written in these past two weeks. God, I hope he doesn't and, read Leeds Twitter. Uh, well, no, <laughs> hopefully not. But then but then again, he's, he's probably young enough and modern enough to, to have that sort of, you know, that... It's like the red button of don't press that red button and you just can't help yourself. Can you need to need to get on there and, and have a look? But he's clearly worked out as well that people are talking about how narrow the team have looked from time to time, you know, when he's tried to do the 4-2-2-2 and, and whatever else. And he was explaining it today by saying, my way of thinking with this is that 
you want to control areas of the pitch by which he was meaning you want to get as many players around the ball as you can without being ridiculous about it so that if you do win the ball and you do turn it over and you have like transitional situations your best place to to exploit that I think that's the sort of thing which we need to see coming out more and working more um, over the, the last few weeks of the season if Leeds do get themselves safe early on you know that would seem to me to be a really useful opportunity to start you know, to start progressing some of that before you get to the summer window and, and really try to change things. We just need Leeds to turn up, don't we, this weekend? But I think if, so. if, if ever there's a weekend we need us to turn up, after the madness of the last couple of weeks, just get out there and give us a routine win. I would uh, well, I would the, thank whichever deity you want to pray to, I'd be glad of that this weekend. If you knock out the, the League Cup, there has not been a routine win this season. Well, at any stage. No. At any stage. There hasn't been one since last May. And it would be absolutely great this weekend to the, just... the closest we came was Burnley at home probably even then yeah, it, was, it, it was still pretty tight until the last it was you, Dan James in the last you minute you remember wasn't it? the hug between Bielsa and Kuroga yeah. you know when that header went in that's it was still that tension of we might just get done at the end here we've threatened to do it a few times even, haven't we like Brentford at home and we let that one go as well I, I was just having a look here even the crew game in the league cup we finished <laughs> up 3-0 it took Phillips until the 79th minute to score yeah, that's and true. then you know it was it was it was all done. So surely, surely at some stage Leeds are due a nice comfy three niller where everybody just sits and says, Isn't this fun? Yeah, I mean this this is what worries me a little bit about this. Which is why I go into this game with cautious optimism, because it's a very it's a very winnable game, I think, with the players that we've got, with the opponent that's there. You look at the rest of the fixtures, I mean like Liverpool, Watford, Chelsea, Brentford, Burnley, Man City, Brighton, Norwich, West Ham Everton, Spurs, Newcastle. Surely, please. <laughs> You would think, wouldn't We're you? not in charge of it, unfortunately. I feel like you're no. appealing to us. <laughs> I know, if it was down to me, I'd say yes. Yes, you can have a... Despite, just, despite Michael's match-fixing connections, yeah. <laughs> so just please tell me it's going to be okay. That's that's all I ask for. And, and actually, that's what worries me about these when I think, well, that's an opportunity to get some points. But actually, we're at the point of the season now where we can't do anything but, can we? It's do or die time still. Despite the confidence that we've got from the last two games, we still need to turn up and perform this weekend. The funny thing about the Watford game as well is that because... Chelsea has been postponed that weekend you're potentially looking at another little breather um, through that point I mean obviously you'll, you'll have a rearrangement I don't think I've missed it have I? I don't think there's been Not yet. a rearrangement nobody seems to be particularly hurrying <laughs> to get this one um, this one scheduled in but imagine coming out of Southampton and Watford with a decent number of points again and the table looking better again and then having another week to breathe again would not do anybody any harm No absolutely how do you feel it's going to go? Phil, I mean, Michael, you're filled with the same existential terror that I am all the well, time. But you tend to be more objective about these things, Phil. Someone criticised me. The, the Cleo chat actually came from someone accusing me of being negative. Or, that's or right. Miserable that's right. We should yeah. say for the benefit of, you, of anybody who's not aware, you did a QA and a um, on The Athletic. You I can, did. You can read it on there. And one of the questions that came up was about Michael's negativity. Why is, why is Michael Normanton so bloody negative? <laughs> to which I said he's just a realist and a man of the world, which is why he's just put an O to Renault Cleo. <laughs> so with that in mind, I'm going to, so Southampton haven't lost 9-0 for a while. <laughs> and I think this is the weekend yeah. for it to happen. They're overdue That's it. Spirit. Mm. That's good, on, good on you, Michael. I, I feel like a home win's incoming. I don't feel like it's going to be a nice 3-0, 4-0 win where it's all wrapped up by halftime. I think everything's just a little bit too close this season. I, do, I don't think Leeds are, are in the form where they're significantly better than other teams at the moment. But I do think they've got the win into this game. Um, and, I, and I hope they do. Please. I know. <laughs> 
I know. Uh, you, know you keep asking these questions every week. I'm thinking, oh, don't. <laughs> Just don't do it. <laughs> if we don't talk about it, then people will say, why are you not talking about it? But no, well, fingers crossed. That's that's all I can hope for at this stage now so we can all have a nice summer when it comes around. I feel like um, a win this weekend will be such a, an enormous psychological blow to everyone below chasing as well because they'd then start to look at that gap and think, realistically, it's, it's looking... Three from four. It's looking pretty un- unlikely now, so... And I want that feeling as well. <laughs> I, th- I think yeah. the Wolves game made a massive difference to that as well, though. You'd, it was the bounce from being on 26 points at 2-0 down to suddenly being on 29. And, you know, despite Watford going and, and doing Southampton, still seven points back. And, and that's the way you've got to play it when you've got the jump on a few clubs is put the pressure on and make them feel like even though they're picking up points from time to time, it's not making any difference. Well, let's just hope for the right outcome, as it has been. Probably since about Christmas, we've been saying, let's just hope, let's just hope. And I did say we'd get points out of Wolves and Norwich. It wasn't quite as I imagined. So let's get points this week, come back next week, and we can all breathe a sigh of relief. You did say to me on WhatsApp after the Wolves game, I called this and I almost messaged you back and said, there's no way you're having that. Absolutely no way. I thought something like this would happen. <laughs> or maybe not. Everyone would get injured and there'd be red cards and last minute yeah. goals. And It's very Leeds United though, isn't it? That Yeah. It is. Yeah. It is. Let's hope for a very un-Leeds United victory at the weekend then, where it, it comes in nice and easy and we can all breathe a sigh of relief. We will return to digest what happens at Ellen Road next week when we preview Watford as well. We'll speak to you then. Bye-bye. The Phil Hay Show. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.